over the past few weeks, we've been looking at this idea of disciple. We've looked at how so often in the church we settle for making members over disciples. We've looked at the question of who's leading who in our lives and simply put, am I a disciple? And last week we even looked at how disciples are called to make disciples. And in so doing, they are fulfilling the great commission by upholding the great commandment. And we know what the greatest commandment is, don't we? It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in Mark chapter 12, beginning of verse 28, we hear that one of the teachers of the law, a scribe, came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. And he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So this man walks up and he notices that Jesus is answering the questions. He's giving sufficient answers. And so he asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment or most important? And Jesus says, the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, said the man. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but Him. To love Him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is important, is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He had answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask Him another question. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So as we hear at the beginning of our text, at this point, there have been many disputes with Jesus over the law. Uh, It began with Jesus' parable of the tenants and the farmers who beat his manager and killed his son. This was at the very beginning of Mark chapter 12. And then the legal experts uh, begin to see that this story is about and against them. And so what do they want to do? Instead of analyzing self, they want to have Jesus arrested. Which raises a whole other question of how how do we react when Jesus' teachings convict us? And we'll look at that a bit later, but think about that. How do you react when Jesus' teachings convict you? Do do you accept and and do some self-actualization, some self-analyzation and look inward? Or do you rebel and say, forget that, I'm not listening to that? Well, they decided they were going to reject, and they begin to set traps. And we hear them ask things like, "Who um, or should we pay taxes to Caesar?" And they, and then they hear about the woman going to be to get married. Um, who is she going to marry in the resurrection if she was married multiple times? And then in the resurrection, who will she be married to? And they're just trying to trap Jesus in all of these teachings. And you can go look through Mark chapter twelve to see these. And now we hear. This, what is the first, what is the greatest commandment? Now this is not a new question, but it it would have been a central question that the scribes would have debated throughout their time together. It's kind of like asking, what is the most important amendment to the Constitution? Or, as Socrates is is asking, what is the greatest good? 
And Jesus' response to them is one that the scribes would have heard multiple times because it's what they refer to as the Shema. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. He quotes the Hebrew text to them. And he says that we are to fulfill this idea of loving God in the loving of our neighbor. These commandments draw together the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. It relates to one's relationship with God and with others, respectively. Following only the love of God command is to only halfway follow the Ten Commandments because to love God properly, we must properly love our neighbors, even those neighbors with whom we disagree. You see, what Jesus is quoting is is not... a battle of different texts. He's not giving them a different text, but it's a battle over the interpretation of the text. He's like, all of those in the chapter are referring to the same, we're all referring to the same traditions and the same text. And and Jesus' answer, he does not go against the tradition so much as reinforce an already existent one. One, however, that was not the dominant interpretation of the leadership of this time. Each group had a different understanding of the tradition of and of the scripture. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Where we interpret the scriptures and their traditions to benefit our own wants and desires. But Jesus, he looks at the heart, the motivation, that overarching way of life, and he states that this is the way to the kingdom of God by saying, There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus was challenging the entire system of of scriptural interpretation of his day. With this elevation of the principle of love of God and love of neighbor above all other laws. Jesus is giving a new system of hermeneutics, if you will. Uh, as a seminary professor calls it, the hermeneutics is derived from the Greek word hermuno, which means to interpret. This idea behind the discipline of hermeneutics is to give a guiding principle of rules that begin above a consistent interpretation of the scriptures. It says this is the overarching theme that everything must fall in to this framework. And I'm convinced that the lens that Jesus gives for this interpretation is a lens of love. That that God's original intention for humanity is in the first place was to live in relationship with God, loving and serving God by loving and serving others. This life of obedience that that creates justice and freedom and peace for us and for all. It's this life that is true life. And throughout their interactions, Jesus begins to recognize that the scribe has grasped what it means to follow God intellectually. He understands what it means. He, He understands what it means to love God He gets the orthodoxy part of it, but the orthoproxy, how you actually put that into practice of loving your neighbor as yourself, he kind of misses on. He's not giving, he's not living in the kingdom, but he is near the kingdom as we hear from Jesus. And this points us out to the reality that God's kingdom is not about where you go when you die, but it's about understanding the will of God in the here and now. 
To love God and to love our neighbor is the purpose of living. It's not simply knowing what it means, although he says that knowing what it means means you're close, but it's living it out that makes you there in the kingdom. But sometimes, and especially in our Western Christianity, we focus so hard on this emotion, this emotive and effective aspect of love, this emotion that is love. We get so caught up in the movies and, and the Hallmark cards and all of these things and the songs and, the, and how it makes us feel that we forget about the rigor and its robustness and the discomfort sometimes that is love. We assume that loving God and our neighbors means expressing some friendly sentiment to God in our Sunday worship and exchanging warm pleasantries with people who live near us during the week. And we forget that in the scriptures, the call to love is a call to be, to be vulnerable, to sacrifice, and to suffer even. It's a call to bear our cross and lay down our lives. That this biblical love is not some emotion that we feel, but it's a path that we travel. As the children of God, we're called to walk in love. To, to put in an aerobic activity, not just some hallmark sentiment. And I'm, I'm blown away, and I love that in our gospel story, that the, it's end in stunned silence. It says they dare not ask another question. Because I feel like silence is the appropriate or first response to this radical love that we're called to. So often we just go, oh yeah, and we keep going about it. But we dare not speak of this radical call. We dare not speak of it simplistically. We dare not speak, we can't say that it's too, it's so simple to do. We bear, dare not cheapen it with this shallow sentiment of piety. Rather, let's ask for the grace to receive it as the wise scribe did. Then we go, God, I, I, I don't even understand. I can't wrap my mind around living out this type of love in awe and grateful silence. Then, when we're ready, when we have spent time digesting what we are called to, let us walk. Let the silence force us to ask these hard questions of, of when was the last time that I felt moved by the call to love? How long has it been since the challenge and beauty of the first commandment gave me pause? How long has it been since I heard it and it undid me and it caused me to change my course or reorder my life? Or am I just one that glosses over it? Have we become like the scribe? One that knows the greatest commandment but doesn't live it? We, we say that we believe, but I think that if you looked at what we actually talk about in our churches uh, as a measure of whether we believe that, we'd come up with some surprising results. That we, we in the church so often seem to go through the motions of our faith until somebody disagrees with us over something that we deem really important. But most religious debates get bogged down in details and, and they honestly find themselves at best tedious and at worst trivial. They, they boil down to this grand adventure, this grand escapade in missing the point of what Jesus is calling us to be. We get so caught up in debating that we lose sight of loving. Now don't mishear me, debate can be healthy. 
And some of the debates in the church have been about important things. Some of the more significant debates in the history of the church include whether the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. But isn't it more about experiencing God's grace? Or maybe the debate of which text or translation of the Bible is perfect. But shouldn't we be paying more attention to the scripture itself? And who can or cannot be members? Now that's a big one. But is that our place or is that the Holy Spirit's place to decide? But it seems, for many of us, we begin to interpret on behalf of the Holy Spirit. And it seems that even when it comes to debating important issues, we find ourselves, boil, it boils down to this adventures and missing the point. That we find ourselves uh, look around, looking around and it's hard to see many examples of people living out this commandment of love God and love neighbor. Because we have become so caught up in being right instead of doing what is right. And according to Jesus' lens of interpretation that we've heard about, whatever theological statement we derive from the Bible should be on par with this lens of love for God and love for our neighbor. So if our interpretation of Scripture doesn't come out of the, on the side of love of God and neighbor, it can't be right. Especially if that interpretation discriminates or oppresses or hates God or God's creation. With these two guiding principles of love of God and love of neighbor, Jesus is ultimately laying out a litmus test for all of our actions and decisions. He is calling us to question, to be honest with ourselves, that as we go about our lives, we must question everything that we do asking this does this action express love for God and love for neighbor let us go forth seeking to live into this litmus test seeking to love God and love neighbor amen and amen